Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Pragmatic Investor. Today I had the pleasure of speaking to Mark Chandler, the Chief Market Strategist at Bannockman Global Forex. He is also a fellow essay contributor, and also writes on his own website, mark to market Today we had a great conversation about the macro outlook for the US economy. We talked about the latest Fed skip, the outlook for Fed policy in the future, what this means for stocks, the US dollar, the growing trend of de-dollarization, Mark's thoughts on China, and why now is such a great time to invest in international stocks. I really enjoyed this conversation with Mark. I found myself agreeing with a lot of his points, and I would strongly encourage you to check out his work on Seeking Alpha, his website, marktomarket.com, that's Mark with a C, and you can also find him on Twitter. If you haven't already, I would encourage you guys to subscribe, like, and share the podcast. As always, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. All right, Mark, welcome to the show. I thought a good place to start today would be reviewing uh, one of your last articles on Seeking Alpha. I'm looking at here, Fed Day, skip equals hawkish pause, but market says finito. Could you elaborate on that for us, please? Yes, yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve is going to be meeting and there's been some uh, some talk from officials, but also some talk in the market about a new terminology, skip. And uh, I, I just couldn't, it's hard for me to get my head around skip because I kind of think that it implies that uh, you skip the June meeting and there'll be another hike. And uh, I'm not sure that that's the way the Fed works. I think that mm-hmm. uh, Powell, uh, Chair Powell, was very clear last time saying that the Fed did not vote to pause, even though they might pause, but that decision is taken at the meeting. And so I, I don't think the Fed can pre-commit to a July move. I think that the uh, the skip language is meant to really underscore a uh, what I would say is a hawkish hold. And that is to say the bar to a July move is relatively low. And I think that's what I mean by the hawkish hold. And I think that the Fed drives that point home through a number of channels. First, Powell himself will likely say the same thing, that even if the Fed doesn't raise rates, they haven't they haven't declared victory. And they mm-hmm. still have the option, of course, to raise rates again. Secondly, another way to convey that hawkish hold is that the Federal Reserve at this June meeting will update its forecasts. And I think that they'll update the, uh, they'll have to revise up growth, partly because growth in the first half this year has surpassed what the Fed thought would grow for the whole year in March. So the economy has been much stronger than the Fed expected. Raising the GDP forecast is another way to communicate uh, this hawkish hold of the market. At the same time, uh, the unemployment forecast by the Fed might be too high. They had it at 4.5% in March. I, I suspect they might have to revise that down. And so, uh, and the other thing they could do to, to stress that hawkish hold is the median dot plot, that is the median forecast for where the Fed thought that Fed funds would finish the year, might be hiked a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think th- those are the three main channels by which I think the Federal Reserve is likely to uh, underscore its hawkish hold. And I'd say this, you know, we, you know, in this day and age, it's become fashionable thinking about uh, inclusion and diversity. And the Federal Reserve is uh, right now among the most uh, diverse by those kind of usual standards. But yet, mm-hmm. uh, there's been a, uh, a very few dissents from the Fed. 
And I, I suspect there could be a dissent uh, this week uh, from the Fed. Uh, by the Fed, I'd be looking at a regional president, uh, the the Minneapolis Fed president Ashkari. You know, at his first meeting, he dissented in favor mm-hmm. of you know uh, he dissented, and uh, and I think he could dissent again now, but in the other direction. Uh, I I'd say that you know, oftentimes in the market we talk about hawks and doves, but I think a guy uh, like Ashkari is really more of an activist. Whichever way the Fed is moving, he wants it to go more, more so. Uh, so right. it's not like he's a hawk right now. The Fed is raising interest rates, so he wants it to be more aggressive. Mm-hmm. And we have a new Fed president, a regional Fed president in Dallas, who's got a lot of experience at the Fed. And uh, she has also, uh, Logan has also suggested that it's too early to pause. Now I don't know if she can, dis- she would dissent at such an early in her tenure, but the possibility that we get a dissent, mm-hmm. which would also drive home that hawkish hold. Right, that's very interesting. That seems to be the consensus right now. We're recording this just ahead of the Fed meeting. I believe it's about a 90% likelihood priced in for that pause. However, if you look at the um, statistics for the next meeting, there seems to be a consensus about 50%, I believe, of the Fed actually raising. So what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's that's what's coming then, a pause and then a raise? Well, I'm, I'm not so sure. I mean, so what, I, what I've done is I look at... Uh... So we're looking at the Fed Fund's future strip, and I'm looking at the January contract. And the reason I look at the January contract is because the December contract, because of the year, because for a couple of things. One, you have to keep in mind that the contract settles not at the target rate, but at the effective average rate of the Fed Fund. So they're taking a weighted average of the cash transaction in the Fed Fund's market. And so that's where it settles at. And since the Fed hiked rates in May, the average effective Fed funds rate has been 5.08%. And when I look at where the market says, looking at that January contract, the market right now, as we speak here, is at is at uh, 5.12%. Mm-hmm. And so that tells me that it's only four basis points on top of the current rate. And so to me, that's a, uh, a very small chance of a hike being priced in. But you could have and some people have suggested they push back and they say, no, what I'm missing is the Fed will hike rates in July, perhaps, and then cut them before the end of the year. So we're back where we are now. And I think right. while it's possible, I think mm-hmm. it's highly improbable. The Federal Reserve would be raising rates and then cutting them. I think it presupposes some kind of shock. And of mm-hmm. course, you know, in what we do, it's, it's next to impossible to forecast a shock. I mean, the shock by definition is of surprise. And so while it's possible that the federal raise rates in July and then cut them before the end of the year, I think it's more likely that by the time we get to that July meeting, which takes place late in the month, we'll see CPI fall further. Remember what happened last June. The CPI rose by 1.2%. This will drop out of the 12-month comparison, be replaced by something much lower, say 0.2, maybe even 0.3. That'll bring the that'll bring the rate down, the headline year over year rate, down to something close to say three point two to three point three percent. So in addition to the low inflation, by the time the Fed meets again at the end of July, well, I, I think we're going to have some weaker economic data. I think the U.S. Mm-hmm. economy is peaking now here in Q2, around two percent growth, give or take a little bit, and that uh, in the second half of the year, 
Some of the tightening forces, whether it's student loans having to be paid back for the first time in several years, whether it's the tightening of fiscal policy as the price for the debt ceiling drama to end, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's just this continuation of some of these drags from whether it's from uh, bank lending tighter lending conditions, whether it's the contraction in money supply, M2, whether it's the collapse uh, in the leading economic indicators, we'll get next week again. And we look at the six-month pace there, and we're at a pace that we've only seen during recession. So I'm looking at the economy almost be an inverse of last year. Remember what happened last year? Economy contracted the first half of the year, grew in the second half. Now I'm suggesting we're going to grow here in the first half of the year. That's already that that cake is baked. Uh, but I'm looking at a weaker economy. So by the time the Fed meets in July, I think if they pause now in June, it is it is hard for me to see how they resume with falling inflation and weaker growth. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. It seems like a lot of what's driving the narrative today is, of course, that uh, disinflation. Right. So that inflation level coming down. At the same time, you're talking about the strength of the U.S. economy. So would you say that maybe we're entering one uh, period that the market would be quite um, favorable about, which is that lowering inflation together with the slightly weakening economic data, probably pushing the Fed to cut? So, well, first of all, what is your outlook on inflation? Do you think that uh, the Fed has conquered inflation? Yeah, so, you know, inflation, I think, is it's a tough thing, partly because uh, there's so many ways to uh, slice and dice the data. What I have found most helpful is to look at what we're doing at an annualized pace. Mm-hmm. So where are we on an annualized pace? And in fact, in the first five months of this year, the CPI has risen faster than it did in the second half of last year. Right. And now I, I, I so I, I think that's a concern. Uh, so I guess if, if I had if, if you told me like uh, you, you nominated me to be uh, at the Federal Reserve for today's meeting, I'd probably be inclined to hike, uh, partly mm-hmm. because I think that inflation, I, I think that the way the Fed is thinking about it is I think they recognize uh, that they were behind the curve uh, to uh, uh, to take their foot off the gas uh, by mm-hmm. uh, the QE. And to add a little bit slow out of the box to raise interest rates, I think that the Fed thinks uh, that its inflation credentials have been have been uh, scarred or scratched or deteriorated a little bit. So I think a, a hike today, a hike uh, here today would be would would rebuild that credibility. And I think that if they and the economy has proven more resilient uh, than the Fed has thought, and so I, I I would be more inclined to raise rates, but uh, thinking that I'm done. With today's mm-hmm. hike, uh, but I don't. I think that the Federal Reserve is still like wrestling with this, uh, and so um, I, I don't think inflation is conquered. But I do think that uh, inflation in the second half of the year is going to be a bit tougher for this base effect because of inflation so low, below three percent in the second half of last year. I think that when we look at the base effect for the second half of this year, it's going to be harder comparison. And so I, I think the, the the most of the decline in inflation might be behind us. Getting it coming to come down from like 8% to say what I think is going to be a 3% or so when we get this June print, that's one thing. But to get it to the 2% target is a bit different. And here's what I'm going to be watching with those dot plots from the Fed, is when you look at what they, what they forecast in March, they still have uh, inflation above their target next year. But they they have signaled by looking at their median forecast, they've signaled more than one cut next year. 
Mm-hmm. And so I, I think when, when we talk about the market uh, pricing in a cut, I don't think that uh, this year is very likely, but I think a cut next year is, is, is very likely. Mm-hmm. Now, when people think about the Fed cutting, that is usually in anticipation of weaker data or recession. This is something that has been talked a lot about. I think, as you said, we've had a bit of a surprise towards the beginning of this year with growth being a bit more robust. How do you feel about the timeline for that recession soft versus hard, hard landing. Where do you fall on that debate? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I thought that uh, we would have a recession by now. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought that those uh, first two quarters of last year contracting two quarters back to back. But that turned out to be a bit of a statistical fluke having to do with trade and inventory management. Uh, you know, economists typically don't admit they're wrong, at least not the economists I know. What they typically do is they just keep pushing out their forecasts. And so the recession from 2022 now is not likely 2020, second half of 2023 or into 2024. I think what's hard about uh, forecasting a recession right now, despite all these economic indicators pointing to weakness, uh, despite the, uh, the strength of the labor market, I'm concerned that next year, as you know, is a presidential election year. Right. And typically, that is not when the U.S. has a recession. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is to say that uh, efforts are done uh, to prevent that from happening. And so uh, slow growth is one thing. A recession, a different story. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think that there's some favorable developments. I mean, besides the strength of the labor market, I think that uh, the easing of supply chains, uh, so far the drop in oil prices, a drop in commodity prices in general, I, I think that... Uh, all, all generally like uh, uh, helping to promote, even if it's weak growth. And I think, the, you know, you raise an important point too. I think what's, the, what's good, like the outlook going to be? So to me, what's happened is it's like the U.S. economy is a snake and mm-hmm. it ate a dough. And that is the shock that we've had, uh, whether it is uh, the lockdowns related to COVID, whether it's the re- uneven reopenings, uh, the uh, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, the, the Chinese economy, uh, all posing shocks. Uh, we've got weather shocks as well with these Canadian fires, uh, low water in the Panama Canal. So as the U.S. economy, the snake, absorbs these shocks, eating that baby dough, it takes a while. To, to to like work its way through the system. And I suspect that on the other side of this, we're going to return to what we call the great moderation. Uh, before, the, before the great financial crisis, uh, we had a long period of slow growth, low inflation. And I think that that is, to me, that's the most likely scenario is a return to slow growth, low inflation, low interest rates. Even though I know many people uh, disagree with me, they think that we've broken into this new a uh, higher inflation world, whether it's because of the end of globalization, uh, whether it's because of uh, various reasons they've come up with why we're going to be in this quasi-permanent uh, higher inflation uh, paradigm. And I think that, uh, I, I think while it's possible, I still think that it's more likely that we go back to uh, the, the forces that were dominating before these shocks that produced this low growth, low interest rates, low inflation. Mm-hmm. Kind of comparable to that Japan kind of period of deflation, right? That Japanification well, of the U.S. economy, you might call it. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I, 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 people talk about that, the J- Japanification of the U.S. I, I think that if there's any country that's experiencing the Japanification right now, probably China, in the mm. sense that consumers seem to be more interested in, in reducing their debt right. than boosting consumption. And, uh, you know, here in the United States, we still see uh, 
uh, I was teasing before about how in the U.S. it's really about OPM. You think about the success of credit cards versus debit cards. Mm. You think about this. Uh, you know, China has this uh, social uh, social scoring, uh, and in the U.S., what do we people talk about? Credit scoring. Right, and I, I think that really illustrates the difference. So I think the U.S. is still caught up in. I mean, you see this with the expanding consumer credit numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not sure that. I, I, to me, the U.S. consumer is still alive, still still well uh, positioned, and that's really why we're not going to have a recession. Job mm-hmm. growth means income growth. Rising stock market means wealth income, wealth effect. All these things help underpin consumption. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. I was actually. Looking at some headlines the other day, I believe it was credit card debt in the U.S. Uh, crossing that one trillion dollar mark. So we have the Fed pause coming up, probably. On the other hand, I've also heard a lot of people talk about the idea of that liquidity being drawn out of the market due to the debt ceiling, right? Because the debt ceiling was reached, the government is now going to refill that TGA, the Treasury General Account, kind of draining liquidity out. How do you see the outlook for stocks and equities in the, in the yeah, in light amazing, of those two events? Yeah, it's an amazing story. Huh? I mean, this, people talk about American exceptionalism, and I don't know any other country that could go through this debt, uh, you know, authorized spending, and then not mm-hmm. having congressional approval to pay for it. It's what a bizarre uh what a bizarre set of circumstances. And, and despite how bizarre it is, and despite uh, Fitch putting the U.S. on credit watch for a possible downgrade over it, I, I think that uh, I think that we should expect this to happen again. Um, mm-hmm. Partly, I think that uh, it's a kind of bizarre thing because in Europe, for example, or Japan, in the parliamentary system, uh, this would seem to be almost impossible to happen. Uh, but the U.S. presidential system, where the party in the executive branch doesn't necessarily have a majority or have control of the legislative branch produce these kind of weird outcomes. At the same time, I think both political parties have used the debt ceiling debate Mm -hmm. to try to exact uh, concessions from the other party. And so neither party, I think, really wants to give it up, even though it seems to me to be a dangerous game that the U.S. loses. I think it, it sort of mars our credibility on the world stage uh, when we have to get so close to this brinkmanship tactics. Um, but I, you raise an important point, and that is uh, sort of what is going on with liquidity. Uh, we know that the Federal Reserve is engaged in quantitative tightening where it's letting the balance sheet shrink. Mm-hmm. Your point about the uh, the debt ceiling uh, as res- the as resolution, a flood of T-bills hitting the market already. Uh, between last week and this week, I think something like $750 billion worth of bills and coupons uh, have hit the market. And the question really is, is how are these paid for? If these are going to be paid out of banks' deposits, banks' reserves, you get a tightening of liquidity conditions. But if it's going to be partly paid out of foreigners, Mm -hmm. Uh, buying U.S. assets, and it's going to be paid partly by deposits coming in back into the banks, Mm -hmm. that the the squeeze on funding may be a little bit less, especially if we see the reverse repo facility where where a lot of money is parked. Mm -hmm. So it's still not clear to me, but I I think to me the uh, interesting development is that despite this, despite the rise in the U.S. two-year yield, uh, the bill supply, uh, which have all been fairly well received so far. Uh, 
that despite all this, the stock market now, the U.S. stocks are 20% or so off their lows. Uh, the uh, European stock market is near its highs for the year. The, the DAX is, is near a multi-year mm-hmm. high. The Japanese stock market has also done incredibly well. I think this might be, we might be at the highest since the uh, early 90s or so. So broadly speaking, I think the idea is that whether whether the Fed goes uh, July, or the ECB goes in July, or maybe later this year, or the, or the Bank of England still looks like it's got more, more wood to chop, that the, the market suspects that the central banks are done or nearly mm-hmm. done really. Interest rates, or they will be done, say, or just about done by the end of Q3. And I think the markets, that's one of the things to think about about conceiving of like framing the markets. It's, it's an anticipatory mechanism. Uh, you're, you're like discounting uh, future events, future probabilities. And the market, I think, is looking past what's 25 basis points, or even 50 basis points in the big scheme of things. And the market, I think, is looking past that. And I think that's mm-hmm. why. That's why I think we've seen uh, equities uh, rally so much in face of rising interest rates, uh, mm-hmm. inflation, and the fact that central banks aren't quite done yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like you say, the market is obviously forward-looking. It knows what is going to happen. And in that regard, I also wanted to talk about recent news we got about China, basically, uh, starting to ease conditions. I believe there was some news coming out from the BBOC saying there would be lowering the benchmark rate, and, of course, adding to that global liquidity. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so uh, you're right. I think, uh, you know, the, the Chinese economy is recovering uh, from the uh, zero COVID policies and the lockdown that really disrupted the not only their economy, but uh, because of their importance as a trading partner, it disrupted many other economies. Uh, so I, I, my sense is that the Chinese economy is uh, well on track to reach its 5% target. Uh, most recently, though, a uh, concern, uh, and here's what you can only see from their actions. It's hard to understand uh, what's going on in their heads, so we can only look at actions. And what they did a couple of weeks ago is they uh, the PBOC convinced the large banks in, in China to cut their deposit rates. Uh, then uh, earlier this week, uh, the PBOC cut its seven-day repo rate, and the market's looking for a cut in the uh, medium uh, one-year benchmark rate, which will set up the set up for a cut next week in the loan prime rate. So monetary easing, at least uh, some accommodation. We're talking about small move, though. You know, we talk about the Fed raising interest rates. The other central banks they were doing seventy-five basis points a clip last year. Uh, some still doing fifty basis points a clip. In fact, uh, many people expect the Bank of England after this recent uh, strong employment data, strong wage data, strong inflation data, to possibly raise rates fifty basis points next week. When the PBOC, when the China moves, we're talking about ten basis points. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to right. get too excited about it. I think it's more mm-hmm. of a signaling device. Uh, so uh, and and the thing too, I think with China is uh, people have really avoided. I think uh, on valuation grounds, uh, relative performance. Uh, people have not been big buyers of Chinese bonds or Chinese stocks this year. But I think that's going to end. I think that money is going to come back into China, and not for political reasons, but just on valuation grounds. Mm-hmm. Here's a country. Uh, perhaps the uh, out of the large economies, uh, the only ones really providing new stimulus. And I think right. that if you told me that uh, uh, here's a bunch of countries, here's a countries that are tightening monetary policy or fiscal policy, and here's one large country that's easing monetary policy, possibly going to ease some fiscal some fiscal support as well. Uh, I say maybe I want to buy that equity market. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, 
but, but I, I do think that it's China, it's particularly with China. I think where my views differ from sort of the consensus on China is I don't see uh, uh, the U.S. trade deficit with China, which is in falling, and especially for low low priced goods. Now I don't see I don't see the rise of China, meaning the U.S. is any poorer. I think mm-hmm. it does impact U.S. trade pa- trade uh, balances, uh, though the probably the most is probably past us. And I would think that, you know, uh, earlier in my career, uh, some of the same arguments that people are using about J- China were applied to Japan. And especially in the auto market, you know, uh, China has surpassed Japan uh, this year to be the world's largest exporter of autos. And uh, some of the same complaints, I mean, earlier in my career, there was a U.S. Congress man uh, from from uh, Missouri who uh, ran for president and took a sledgehammer to uh, imported cars. Uh, we, that is the U.S., but also uh, to some extent Europe, uh, pressured, pressured uh, Japan to let the currency appreciate, but ultimately solved the problem. And, you know, tomorrow, or the day before the BOJ meeting, uh, they're going to re- release their trade figures. And I don't think that Japan has reported a trade surplus in well more than a year. So even though Japan, we thought we in the U.S. thought that Japan's trade surplus was a reflection of the U.S. trade deficit, and our problems would be solved if Japan would stop doing that. What Japan does now is they build cars, build products in the U.S., sells them in the U.S. Their trade, their trade, de- their trade surplus has gone to a trade deficit, and yet the U.S. still has a trade deficit. And I suspect mm-hmm. that the U.S. trade deficit with China will fall. Uh, because of protectionism, tariffs, and whatnot. And instead, the U.S. trade deficit with countries like Vietnam and Malaysia will go up. This right. is a, it's a, I think the U.S., uh, out of all the U.S. policies, uh, leaving aside, I mean, when I think about the foreign policies, uh, the U.S. trade policy to me seems to be the most, uh, the, the most like inappropriate, the most, the most bizarre. This whack a mole, uh, pick out a country that's running a trade surplus with the U.S. and, uh, get it to raise its currency, or open up its markets, and then it make the U.S. trade balance go away. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, definitely makes a lot of sense. I find myself agreeing with the idea of perhaps China being an opportunity now. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about currencies as well, because I know that's also one of your area of expertise. Now, a few weeks ago, there was a quite a popular interview going out, uh, I don't know if you know uh, Stanley Druckenmiller, the investor. There was an interview of him going out. Yeah. So he was basically saying that uh, he wasn't sure about anything. The only thing he was kind of sure about was uh, kind of shorting the U.S. dollar or the idea that the U.S. dollar would go down. Now, we haven't quite seen that happen in the last few months at least. What are your thoughts on the U.S. dollar? What is your outlook there? Yeah, so I would would draw a distinction between – so the Druckenmiller idea that there's a trade to be made, there's money to be made by showing the dollar. And then there seems to be another crowd of people who say that the dollar is lost. The dollar is in this uh, is going to be replaced by uh, uh, whether it's China or uh, multiple currencies like a multipolar world. Uh, you know, in my career, which now goes back to, I'm embarrassed to say, but back to the Plaza Agreement uh, back in 1985, mm-hmm. uh, September of '85, uh, the central the dollar was very strong. Central banks met at the Plaza Hotel, which is now condominiums in New York, and agreed to drive the dollar down. And uh, uh, you know, ever since then, I think 
people have been saying that the dollar was going to follow the the historical path of other reserve currencies like sterling and lose its role in the world economy. And I, I think that while it's po- it's another one of these things that are possible, but still seems to me to be uh, improbable. Uh, partly, it seems that uh, I would draw a distinction with the dollar between its its use as a transactional vehicle. So when Australia sells China iron ore, it'll be invoiced in U.S. dollars, price in U.S. dollars. That could change. Mm-hmm. Then I got so the, the dollar as a, as a transactional vehicle, and then the dollar as a store of value. And I think the key to the dollar's long run sort of role in the world economy comes from its store of value, not from it as used as a transactional vehicle. And so, to me, the and, and this is why I would look at the uh, IMF's uh, COFER, C O F E R. It's the most authoritative source of data about reserves, uh, about the reserve allocation. And I know people look at it and they say, oh, the dollar's role has declined. And it matters, of course, where you begin it from. Many people now are taking its peak, which takes place around the time that there's conversion from the, to, to adoption of the single currency in the euro. And because of the, the mathematics of it, those Deutschmarks, for example, that were at the Bank of France, are, would no longer count as reserves. So all of a sudden, uh, with the advent of the euro, the dollar share reserves jumps. I think that's an artificial number, something on the mm-hmm. low 70 percent. Okay. Uh, today, it's probably a little bit below 60 percent. It's been fairly stable there. And so be- so uh, what's going to happen? I think that uh, the dollar's role, I, I sort of think that the dollar, you know, we're going to break into two blocks. It's probably easier to conceive of the world as two blocks. And within the dollar block, we'll have some junior partners like the euro or the Aussie or Canada or sterling, uh, Swiss franc. And these currencies will help. Will have, they are reserve currencies now. We already have a, multi- a multipolar reserve currency system. The dollar just is the biggest share. But I think in the dollar block, uh, those currencies will have a role to play. I, I think that there's another block forming, but it's not a block that is forming not because of the U.S. trade policies, its sanctions, uh, dislike for U.S. Uh, fiscal policy. Rather than quitting the dollar zone, this other block was fired from it. And by that, I mean Russia, Iran, uh, to some extent, Venezuela, North Korea. And China, I think, is, uh, is seizing the opportunity Mm-hmm. To, to internationalize the RMB, but within that, within that, so you got the dollar block, and say you have this RMB block, and within that RMB block, I don't think that the other currencies—North Korea, Iran, Venezuela, Russia—could really, could really offer any of the the, the sort of functionality mm-hmm. of China. So I think that while the dollar block will have these multiple currencies, like we already see uh, with the euro or the Swiss franc or Canada or Aussie, the RMB block will really be dominated by just the sheer size of China and not having like junior partners within that. In fact, you know, when, when Russia first invaded Ukraine, I thought that China was one of the big losers, of course, besides Ukraine and the human tragedy there. I thought China would be one of the big losers because NATO would be bigger. bigger. Uh, in fact, uh, there's some talk of uh, that this next NATO meeting that not only will Japan attend, but NATO is opening up an office in Japan. What uh, I thought that China would also be a loser from the Russian invasion because uh, both Australia, uh, South Korea, and Japan recognize the similarities between Taiwan and Ukraine, and so they are bolstering their own defense spending. So there's, and so what China has done in effect 
one of the uh, one of sort of Sun Tzu's principles is don't allow your adversaries to come together. The U.S. has done that, allowing Russia and China to come together. Uh, but China has allowed South Korea and Japan to come together in a way that, uh, for obvious historical reasons, always seemed a tense relationship. And and so, uh, uh, but I think that China China is sort of taking the lemons and making lemonade with that. I think that they are able to dominate the partnership with Russia in a way that Beijing couldn't have even dreamed about a few years ago. And so I think that China recognizes that the role for the RMB, partly to help supplement uh, the dollar's role, you see this in some emerging market countries too, for example, Pakistan, which is in serious financial straits, has used uh, its swap lines with China to raise the RMB to buy Russian oil. Mm -hmm. Argentina, another uh, distressed country, used its swap lines with China to take the RMB. And what did it do with the RMB? They bought Chinese goods. It's almost like producer financed. So I can see a role for China. Uh, and partly sort of like, uh, you know, that in the U.S. we have this uh, Christmas uh, cartoon, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And there's, a, there's, a, there's a, an island uh, for broken toys. But for mm. unwanted toys. And I sort of think that is sort of like the R&B block. But again, these countries are not protesting the U.S. They've been kicked out. They've been sanctioned, so they can't have access to the dollar market. China mm. takes them together and forms a little club. Absolutely, yeah. Rate, I think it's a different story. But we, we could talk about the exchange rate, but different from the dollar's structural role in the world economy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think when people talk about that, de-dollarization trend they make some good points but they forget perhaps the most important point which is well what is the alternative to the dollar right what is the alternative now there is in my mind one possible alternative which a lot of people talk about as well an asset which actually has been increasing in value substantially making close to all-time highs in most currencies not in dollars and that is of course gold and the idea has also been floated around that maybe russia and china could issue a gold-backed currency now would that be a viable substitute replacement would that allow these kind of misfits to perhaps challenge the reign of the u.s dollar yeah so you know gold is one of these incredible things right it's had such a long history of being used uh, uh for as a store of value i'm not so sure it's practical uh, mm -hmm. partly i'm not sure that china and russia have sufficient amounts of gold to back their currency uh a substantial part of their currency even in gold um, yeah, you know, so it is true that in recent uh, months, like maybe for the last six or seven months or so, China has been buying gold. Uh, of course, it means other central banks are selling gold, like Turkey, for example, or Venezuela. But uh, just focusing on like China's and Russia probably has been having to sell some gold, too. Uh, so China absorbing buying gold. Uh, Singapore has been buying gold as well. Uh, and when I look at the dollar value of the gold. It's a very small part. Remember, China has over $3 trillion of reserves. And I want to say that the gold holdings, now I haven't done these numbers for the last couple of months, but I want to say the gold holdings is something of maybe 170, maybe even $200 billion of gold. $3 trillion of reserves, $200 billion being generous with the gold holdings. So I don't think that, I think that the people who really talk about gold as a uh, sort of rekindling gold's role as the key to the global finance uh, don't appreciate the kind of price appreciation that'll be needed to make sure that there's enough gold backing 
And by that, I mean, like gold, like you mentioned, is near near record highs. We're we're hovering just below two thousand dollars an ounce. I, I think gold has to get to like $20,000 an ounce before it become, can really rival the amount of financial securities out there in the role of the dollar. Here's what strikes me. And this is one of the things that I'm fascinated with the foreign exchange market. Average daily turnover. And this is done by a survey from the Bank for National Settlements. And you can find it online, BIS.org. They do the survey every three years. The last survey showed that the average daily turnover in the foreign exchange market, $7.5 trillion, $7.5 trillion a day. Now, global trade in a year is only about $30 trillion. The world economy, everything the world produces, the goods and services the world produces in a year, roughly $100 trillion. So this we're talking today on a Wednesday. That already means that uh, by the end of business today, uh, the uh, we would have seen about t- almost thirty billion, thirty trillion dollars of foreign exchange this week. And so, what what's happened? I think that the reason why the U.S. went off the gold standard uh, in 1971, even though the U.S. still has more gold than any country in the world, and the reason is is that gold was too much of a straitjacket. Mm-hmm. What we've what we've done is, you know, uh, I worked at this bank earlier in my career uh, that David Bowie approached, and he said, "Listen, I sell uh, millions of dollars of CDs and DVDs every year. Can't I can't I get my money up front?" And so there are David Bowie back uh, asset backed bonds. Uh, municipalities in the U.S. also in Europe have tried to how to lower the interest rate so taxpayers don't have to pay so much. And one way to do that is to secure a bond, guarantee the bond with a certain income stream, like parking mm-hmm. meter income or toll income. These are only possible because after Brent Woods collapsed, after the dollar no longer linked to gold, it allowed for an explosion of the fi- of a sort of financial superstructure. And that financial superstructure is so large. We talk about there's different ways to talk about it. Sometimes people talk about think about how much debt there is. There's too much debt. And the challenge, though, of course, is you look at a U.S. bond and uh, uh, you say, well, that's the government's debt. But I look at the U.S. bond on my on my household balance sheet, and it's an asset. And so that so it's really like who has it, who whether the issuer or the buyer. But it seems to me that there's been this explosion of financial assets, partly debt, partly assets, sort of the sort of opposite side to the same coin. And gold is gold is too small of a market at current prices to mm-hmm. to really take that to take any a significant part of that burden away. So I, I think that the uh, the idea of gold. Coming back as a uh, whether China, Russia, or the BRICS bank backs a currency in gold, I, I really don't think that it's uh, it's really going to be practical. And even now, you know, people are, like you know people are talking about a BRICS currency, and it just seems so uh, weird to me. Partly because you know, look how look what's happened to the euro. People thought that the, you know that the euro, the Europe, the eurozone was not a uh, like an optimal currency zone, and surely. The BRICS are not an optimal currency zone. Right. And even the concept of BRICS sort of plays down rivalry within them. For example, India and China have killed each other. They, are, they have border disputes with each other. There's no way that India wants to help promote the internationalization of the RMB. 
And to have them in the same currency seems highly unlikely to me. So, And I think about how long it took Europe to have a common currency. I think about how long it took the U.S. You know, when the U.S. was founded, we didn't have a common currency. We didn't get a common currency. That's what the Federal Reserve Act in the early 20th century did. It gave us the dollar as a national currency. Before then, all the different states would have banknotes, state banknotes. And the, the, the third world crisis of the 19th century was U.S. railroads, U.S. states. And mm-hmm. so, uh, uh, yeah, I just think that this uh, the idea of two things, really. One is that ever since my beginning of my career, people have sought an alternative to the dollar. And it makes sense. Nobody likes, whoever on the top of the hill, nobody likes. And everybody looks for an alternative. Uh, but I'd say that uh, despite that, I'd say that we still haven't found one. To your point, it's just not clear a compelling alternative. You know, we probably use, you know, I'm sure we use the same type of keyboard, Q-W-E-R-T-Y. And I'm told that there are better, better ergonomically designed keyboards out there. Mm-hmm. Someone will have a better currency. But it can't just be a little bit better. For me to learn a new keyboard, there has to be like, it has to be like vastly better. It can't. It can't just be equal, because of the you know because of the experience and what I've already had to learn. And I think a lot of people are like that. You know, I'd give you another example too. Many years ago, people thought it'd be great to have a common language for the whole world, and called Esperanto. Right. And yeah. I know there's still some people who follow Esperanto, uh, some documents in Esperanto, but it's not an official language. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard, to, and I kind of think that's what would happen if if. Uh, a, a group of countries come together with no with, with no common central bank, no common fiscal policy. We see what that means in Europe. They, they have that in the BRICS. I think this is more fantasy and more reflection of this desire for an alternative than a real concrete alternative in itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And like you say, I think there's just too much of a cost associated to abandoning the dollar that it's just a price that a lot of people don't want to pay. Now, I can sort of intuit what your answer to this is going to be, but since we have touched on gold and currencies, and this is something that I write about uh, quite often, any thoughts on Bitcoin? Bitcoin, yes. Uh, it's what an amazing thing, though. On, on one hand, I'd say it's an amazing story that sort of captures, uh, so sort to of say, early 21st century uh, finance developments, technology developments. Uh, I, so I, I, it's like kudos. Uh, for crypto, uh, for employing the latest technologies, and for and for really telling, uh, for showing that credit card companies have com- competition, uh, banks mm-hmm. have competition. Uh, on the other hand, it sort of, in some ways, it reminds me a bit of the moral majority, a political movement in the U.S. There was neither a majority nor necessarily moral. Crypto is a coin, or crypto like Bitcoin. These are called coins uh, because they call themselves coins, not because mm-hmm. they really have the function of money. And I, I think that there's a uh, so one I don't think that it's really money. You know, even though the price goes up, I have turns out I have a comic books when Clark Kent, not Superman, but Clark Kent, proposes to Lois Lane. That comic book is worth a bit of money these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I might have paid a couple of bucks for them on the streets in New York. It might be worth say twenty twenty five dollars now. I've got a, I've got a stack of them. I cannot pay my landlord in them. I cannot pay mm-hmm. my taxes with them. Are they really money, even though they've increased in value? I think the same thing with crypto. Um, if I try to offer my grocer, my landlord, my lawyer, my accountant crypto, they wouldn't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. I don't see corporations. I help a, these days, uh, Bannockburn, who employs me, uh, thankfully, 
uh, is they, they help us small, medium-sized businesses and asset managers, family offices, manage the foreign exchange market. And what they're trying to do is manage their risk. If they all of a sudden take on crypto, they're taking on more risk. They're not managing their old risk, like uh, sending out an invoice when they buy a, you know, uh, hedging when they send out an invoice or locking in a price for the euro when they buy a German machine tool. So I don't think that there's really much of a space uh, for crypto among corporate treasures. Uh, so, and I think that there's like a contradiction at the very heart of it. Many people I know who, many of my friends who have uh, invested in crypto, they tell me that fiat currencies are, uh, they're fiat. They're not backed by gold or silver. Uh, central banks are printing them like it grows on trees. They say they're going to lose value. And so so there's a, a law in economics, Gershom's Law, which basically says uh, good money, uh, bad money chases out the good. And so here's what happens then. You have your choice. You have, a, you have your, uh, your crypto wallet. You've got some Bitcoins in there. And you've got dollars. And so time to buy something. And maybe you find someone who, can, who will take either one from you. Because you think, as a, as a holder of crypto, that this fiat money is going to lose value over time, you're likely to spend that and hold on to your crypto. Mm. And that's what, that's what we find. I mean, in some of the studies I've seen, uh, crypto holders, and you look at the IP addresses, the ISP addresses, and you see that there hasn't been so much of a turnover. That while there are traders of crypto, a lot of people buy and hold. The, mm. You know, the H-O-D-L-E-R yeah. type of thing. And I think that what, what, what happens then, because the dollars are spent, the crypto is held on to, I think that that means that the crypto can't get that critical mass, that networking effect, that makes right. it widely acceptable. And so I think that uh, because of the because of the mentality, thinking that fiat is bad and only goes down over time, uh, and crypto is good, it's going to go up over time. It means you're going to be spe- you're going to be selling or using the wasting asset to make your transactions, and thereby giving the dollar its networking effect, but not giving crypto its networking effect. Hmm. That's very interesting. Kind of like a catch twenty two situation for Bitcoin. Yes, I, I think that. I mean, it's, it's, it's an incredible idea, and I've. Uh, I think that other places we've. I mean, to really uh, explore like what blockchain does, for example, mm-hmm. as separate from crypto, trying to use that technology. But I think that uh, crypto is an incredible uh, asset uh, in the sense that people can buy and sell it, uh, but it's under its intrinsic value, like the mm-hmm. use value. I think is very limited. Right. Now, to wrap up, we were talking before we started about some ideas within the currency space, some possible trading ideas. Uh, what are your thoughts? Any, any, what would you recommend to viewers? Any, any ideas there? Yeah, sure. So a couple, a couple of big picture things for you. So, um, so the first is to appreciate that the dollar has risen in value basically since the end of the financial crisis, the great financial crisis, say call it 2000, uh, crisis 08, 09, say since 2010 or so. And I think that big dollar rally is over. And what this means is if you have a basket of international stocks, the currency component could be a third of your total return. If you have a basket of international bonds, the currency volatility could be two thirds of your return. So I think that the dollar's super cycle, the dollar's uh, rally since the end of uh, end of the great financial crisis, I think that ended last September and October. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the sterling made 
I was on Bloomberg Radio, and uh, people were talking about how last September that the UK was an emerging market country, and they had sterling going down uh, below the euro. And uh, I thought that was just a, uh, a a gross exaggeration. To me, this is a, a, a reflection of extreme market sentiment. Mm-hmm. And so as we talk here today, uh, I, I look at uh, so currencies, as like our, as our crypto friends tell me, have no intrinsic value because they're not backed by gold or silver. So what economists have done is they've created a model. We, use, we call it purchasing power parity. And you can see in the Economist magazine, uh, they sometimes use uh, a Big Mac or uh, right. Starbucks cappuccino. But the idea is that a basket of internationally traded goods should trade for this, should sell for the same price when you make the currency adjustment. To the extent they don't, shows you a currency misalignment. But the Organization of Economic Cooperation Development, like the 26 large rich countries, uh, Western countries in Japan, Australia, uh, these large countries, their currencies typically don't move more than plus or minus 20% from fair value. The euro is about 50% undervalued. The Japanese yen is about 45% undervalued. Sterling is about uh, 20% undervalued. So one of the things that tells me is that after being long U.S. stocks for quite a while, that I, that I'm interested in buying international stocks, uh, stocks that have international exposure, because the dollar is so expensive compared to the euro and yen, and what that mean and sterling, and what that means is that the dollar investors can get a lot more bang for their buck, whether they're buying companies, whether they're buying earnings stream, whether they're hiring labor, so much mm-hmm. cheaper outside the U.S. right now. So one suggestion. Uh, as far as I kind of take advantage of this currency insight, what does this mean for individual investors, retail investors? Look to diversify into European and uh, Japanese stocks. Second thing is I think that um, one of the me- the memes, so the themes in the markets lately has been the strength of Latin American currencies. And I think that the uh, Mexican peso still has room to go. The peso is trading already at uh, roughly seven-year highs. We're trading around 1720 or so. And I think we could go down to about 1650 or so. And again, the story here is not that people like, uh, that is to say, global investors don't mm-hmm. like necessarily AMLO's investment policies and the investment climate. What they do like is that the central bank and the Supreme Court in Mexico have institutional strength and independence. Right now, the overnight interest rate in Mexico is 11.25%. There's a huge carry to be picked up. The stock market also is among the better performers of emerging markets, done much better than, say, the MSCI emerging markets. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's room for capital appreciation if you buy bonds at the long end of the curve uh, to have bond appreciation, partly because Mexico, like Brazil, uh, maybe Colombia, Chile can cut rates before the end of the year. This time around, Latin American countries were very early and aggressive in raising interest rates. And they'll be able to be rewarded by that by being able to cut them well before the Federal Reserve. So I, so for currencies, uh, so for broadly speaking, investment purposes, the dollar strong can buy foreign assets cheaper, especially Europe and Japan. For individual currencies, I like the Mexican peso. It's a it, it and the Colombian peso sort of wrestle for the top dog this year. Uh, Colombia's got the slight advantage now. Uh, so I, li- I still like Latin American currencies. Broadly speaking, I, like I say, I think the dollar has 
the U.S. dollar peaked last year, and I would look for the euro, which is trading today around 108, maybe 108 and a half. I think we can go up to 112 this year, 120 next year. Uh, I look for dollar yen at peak. I think the dollar peaked last year above 150 to the dollar, and I think we could be uh, trading closer to 120 in a year's time. Uh, today we're trading close to 140. Uh, well, I must say, Mark, I find myself agreeing with what you're saying. I've been beating the drum about uh, these kind of ideas for the last few weeks and months. International stocks, I've been myself purchasing some uh, international bonds, also stocks in Brazil, for example, I think a good economy. So overall, I find myself agreeing with what you're saying a lot. Uh, before we go off, please let everyone know where they can find you on Seeking Alpha, the internet, and what you're doing. Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm really fortunate. I know a lot of people uh, try to like uh, uh, monetize their internet presence, uh, whether it's Substack and trying to raise money for that. I'm fortunate. I have a job. And my employers, uh, going back till uh, 2006 or so, have allowed me to post my stuff on the internet. I have a blog called uh, Mark to Market, uh, Mark with a C, uh, MarkToMarket.com, and and uh, I, I'm up uh, early every morning in the U.S. And I sort of think of what I do as a bit like uh, tofu. You know, tofu is partly digested soybean cheese. And I think what I do, getting up early, uh, reading the news. And then trying to distill it to uh, actionable things, uh, recapping the news and showing what it means for prices. So combining fundamental and technical analysis, I write uh, every day of the week. And then I have a weekend uh, where I take, a, a say, a longer look at the week ahead. That's, again, on my, my blog, uh, marktomarket.com. I, I do allow, uh, because I think that uh, what I, what I want to do is, like I say, I have a job. I, I don't know if my boss is listening. I I, but if he is, I'd say that my boss pays me fairly. Uh, and uh, so uh, I don't look to monetize. I look to what I look to do. My goal is to uh, participate in the dialogue of the day. And so I let uh, I let other places pick up my feed. Uh, my posts have been appearing on Seeking Alpha, I want to say, uh, 15 years or so now. Uh, um, and there's other places that pick it up. But Seeking Alpha uh, is an early uh, supporter of mine. And they continue to uh, post my commentary. I also recognize the importance of other parts of the social media. Uh, when I post a when I post something on my blog, it automatically sends out a tweet. I also mm -hmm. add things to my uh, my Twitter feed. Uh, there, my handle is called uh, Mark Making Sense, and that really comes from the first book I wrote. After spending about uh, I don't know 25 years involved in the currency markets, I wrote a book called Making Sense of the Dollar, uh, and that is just trying to. What I look at is like 10 things that I think are myths and I try to show why the reality is uh, is more different or, or not as bad or more complicated. Uh, and then, uh, so that, that, that first book, uh, Making Sense of the Dollar, published by Bloomberg. And then I wrote another book that sort of says, uh, uh, basically it builds on that first book and tries to make sense out of the, out of the, uh, the idea basically is that that era that Reagan and Thatcher created, uh, say from the late 70s, through the great financial crisis, I say that is over. And I look at the dynamics, what, what's going to come next? And so that book called Political Economy of Tomorrow, it's available out there so, you know, at the, uh, when I say online bookstores, without mm -hmm. mentioning Amazon's name per se, but other places as well, of course. And uh, as those are the main places to, to uh, my blog, uh, the, and, and Twitter. I'm also on LinkedIn where I, I get to post some of, the, my, some of my commentary there too. 
Now, thanks a lot, though. I, I appreciate uh, I appreciate the time you've given me here today, and uh, and and good luck to you. Well, thank you very much once again, Mark. I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been great. I look forward to following you on Twitter and all your stuff on Seeking Alpha as well. Uh, thanks again for coming on, and hope we can do this again sometime. Sure. Good. Good luck to everybody. All right. Thanks. Bye bye, everyone. Once again, everyone, thanks for listening to The Pragmatic Investor. If you aren't already, please go ahead and follow me on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever it is that you're listening to the podcast. And remember that if you'd like more content on investing, I do a lot more on Seeking Alpha. You can find me there, James Ford, The Pragmatic Investor, where I cover crypto, the macro outlook, international stocks, and so much more.